0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, where is Hello. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Other People program. My name is Brad Listy and I am in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're doing okay, and I've got a great show for you. My guest today is Morgan Talty, author of the debut story collection, Night of the Living Rez. You
1: know, this is the thing I'll say about failure, is like, there's two spheres of failure, and one of them really doesn't exist. So like we think that there's failure, like we write something and the piece fails and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. It gets tucked in a folder, we never see it again. Then there's the failure of like trying to publish and you just keep keep getting told no, right? Or you publish a book and it doesn't sell well, right? You know, like there's that failure. The failure of writing work and it not turning out into anything is an illusion. Like I don't, I don't believe that anything we write is actually a failure. It's always for me, and and I didn't understand this until, you know, a couple of years ago, but when we write a draft that doesn't work, it usually is in some way pointing us in the right direction.
0: All right, that was Morgan Talty, author of the debut story collection, Night of the Living Rez. It's available now from Tin House. Night of the Living Rez is the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online lit mag slash community. founded all the way back in 2006. It has its own monthly book club. And I interview the book club authors on this program. So if you would like to sign up for the book club, get a new book every 30 days delivered to your door, just go to TheNervousBreakdown.com for details. Night of the Living Rez is a remarkable debut. It is visceral, powerful, devastating, funny, bleak, beautiful, tragic. It's all of those things and often at the same time. These are stories that bring you into the lives of a Penobscot family in Maine that is dealing with intergenerational trauma, cycles of poverty and addiction, and it is a searing and beautiful portrayal of a family and a community that is trying to come to grips with a difficult past and a very precarious and uncertain future. My conversation with Morgan Tolte is coming up in just a bit. Quickly, I want to remind you that I do a weekly email newsletter comes out once a week. It is free. If you would like to receive my email newsletter, it is essentially an enumerated list. I send out a list each week wherein I share things that I've been reading and thinking about and finding interesting. It's pretty straightforward. I also let you know about the latest episode of the podcast, of course. So if you would like to sign up for my email newsletter, you can do that at this podcast's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in either place. So sign up. It's free. It's once a week. I will not inundate you with emails. And uh, hopefully you can find something useful in it. This podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show, almost 800 episodes and counting at this point, all of it is made available to listeners free of charge. I depend on listeners who really enjoy the show, who really get something from it to support the show. And I've tried to make that as easy as possible. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreoncom slash other PPL pod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N patreo com slash other PPL pod. You can get merch as you move up the scale. So you can support the show for a buck a month three bucks, five bucks, 10, 20, whatever it is that you can swing. And as you move up the scale, you'll, you can get a t-shirt, a tote bag, a book club subscription, coffee mug, all kinds of stuff. So please support the show and help keep it going at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Another way to help the show, if you would be so kind is to rate it and review it wherever you listen. Uh, for example, at Apple Podcasts. Go give the show a rating and a quick review. It helps the show find new listeners algorithmically. You know how that works, right? So please rate and review the show. Take two minutes. Last but not least, if you have feedback, if you would like to let me know how you're feeling or give me some advice or if you would like to share your thoughts on a particular episode, the email address for this show is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. All right. So my guest, once again, is Morgan Tulte, author of the debut story collection, Night of the Living Res. It is available now from Tin House. Morgan Tulte is a citizen of the Penobscot Indian Nation, where he grew up. His work has appeared in a variety of publications, including Granta, The Georgia Review, Shenandoah, TriQuarterly, Narrative Magazine, and elsewhere. He is the winner of the 2021 Narrative Prize and an assistant professor of English and uh, creative writing and Native American and contemporary literature at the University of Maine, Orono. He is also on the faculty at the Stone Coast MFA in Creative Writing, as well as at the Institute of American Indian Arts. So he's a busy guy. Oh yeah, he's also the prose editor at the Massachusetts Review. So a lot going on and a very promising start to his literary career with publication of this excellent new collection. Here he is, folks. This is Morgan Tolte and his debut story collection, One More Time, is called Night of the Living Res*.
1: So I am currently in Levant Pain, which is like right near the Bangor area, and I'm sitting at my uh, kitchen table in my kitchen.
0: Is that where you wrote your book?
1: Pretty much, yeah, I wrote, I wrote it here. I also wrote some of it at a different kitchen table in a different apartment. Wrote some of it outside <laughs> in random
0: places. What do you mean outside, like outside at a cafe or just like sitting in nature?
1: Just sitting outside, you know, when I was an undergrad, you know, I used to hang out outside of the English department and sit on the bench there and would sometimes do work or uh, write and smoke cigarettes, (laughs) you know, uh, which I've quit doing. But yeah, I don't know. I just found different spaces to be sort of inspiring in a way, you know, instead of getting stuck at the same old cubicle type job.
0: Did you write longhand?
1: Uh, no, I typed on my computer. If I wrote longhand, I would, I would not be a writer if I had to write by hand because my penmanship is so bad and my spelling is not the greatest. And I'm just like, I would be so deterred. I'd be like, I am not a writer
0: if I can't even read my own handwriting. Okay, and play, yeah, and like the computer. I feel like today, like the computers with spell check and. Everything's so user-friendly when it comes to writing. I don't understand how people, Yeah. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I've tried to do it longhand, but I'm just a, I'm a typer.
1: Yeah, I can't, I can't handwrite. People, I, I always hear stories of writers who do their first drafts by by hand, and I'm like, I would be so demoralized if I read back what I wrote, if I could read it at all.
0: Well, and it just seems like it adds labor, because you write it out by hand, and then you've got to type it, you know, get it onto your computer at some point, so there's all this transcription yeah. that you've got to do. and. I don't know. I like to sit there and noodle with it, and like kind of like edit it constantly until I've beat it to death. <laughs> Same. <laughs> um, but I want to say something because you mentioned smoking cigarettes. This story collection, which in a way reads like a novel, I mean, it's one of these linked story collections, and you have a universe of characters that are inhabiting all of the stories. And uh, this this story collection made me feel like I had bronchitis. There is so much smoking in this book that at the end, I was just like, my God, like I'm getting a chest cold just reading this. This incredible amount. It reminds me of growing up in Indiana, everybody smoked. There's so much smoking and it's also generational, but I guess it's like, I just haven't seen that much nicotine in a work of fiction in a long time. There's a lot of smoking in this book.
1: There is, yeah. I, uh, I got an email from, I wrote a recommendation letter for a student yeah, well, a lot of people bring up the, the amount of smoking in the book, but I thought this was... And I've often said, I don't know if there's any uh, tobacco companies out there listening, but if you uh, want to sponsor, you can have this book be your sponsor. Get it in schools, get children d- addicted to cigarettes. But no, this, this student, uh, I wrote a recommendation letter for, he emailed me back, and he's like, I read your book, he's like, he said something along the lines of, he's like, He's like, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life and I have never wanted to smoke a cigarette in my life. He's like, but now I feel like I need to start smoking <laughs> or something along, <laughs> something like that. Um, so so you're not the only one who's been affected by the sheer amount of <laughs> tobacco, <laughs> and tobacco in the book.
0: I mean, is this how you grew up? Did you grow up smoking as a kid and everything and in, in, in a house with lots of cigarettes and people just like trading cigarettes with one another?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like I grew up on the on the cusp of when, like, you could still smoke in, like, restaurants or, like, diners and diners had, like, the, uh, smoking section, you know, and my dad always brought me to the casino and people were smoking there, but everyone in my family smoked. I mean, when I was little, I remember those little, um, they're usually, like, Spider-Man packs of, like, cigarettes for kids, but they were just, like, chalk, I don't know if you remember them. Oh, Um, right, yeah, like the kid cigarettes with, like, the toy candy cigarettes. Yeah, they're, like, kids, yeah, toy candy cigarettes. So I had those, and, like, because I always, my mom would just drink coffee and smoke cigarettes in the morning, and, like, I was as a kid, would be there, and I'd have, like, my fake cigarette, you know, and then I got older, and I started smoking when I was, like, 13, and then my mom eventually let me just start smoking, and so, like, it just, it it became this, like, it was just a thing that was always around me, and I think any smoker will say, you know, your whole day is shaped around you know, (laughs) cigarettes, or at least those who, you know, are are smoking a pack a day, you know what I mean? Like, if you're at work, you know when your break's gonna be, so you're gonna have a cigarette. If you're taking a bus somewhere, you know which stops you can get off on and have a smoke. And so yeah, it was just, you know, part of my life, you know, I I don't smoke anymore, but it found its way into the book. There was much more smoking in the book before it was, uh, before it was edited. Really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there there were i i I took stuff out, I think it was Rick Bass I was working with the writer Rick Bass, he was like, uh, he's like, for individual stories, the amount of the, the amount of smoking's fine, but when you put this all together, he's like, you gotta take some of it out. he's like, there's too much, and there still probably is too much, considering I gave you bron- bronchitis, so <laughs> so where did you grow up? You grew up in Maine? Yeah, so I was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I lived there until I was six, and then my mom. And my dad got divorced and my mom took me and we moved to the Penobscot Nation. So I lived there when I was six until I was 18 and I graduated high school and my mom moved off the reservation, just the town over. But I still, you know, was constantly over on the res, staying with mainly friends and, and stuff. But yeah, I feel when people ask me where I grew up, I say the Penobscot Nation, cause that just feels like home. That's where I spent most of my life.
0: And this is in
1: where? So this is in Old Town. So there's um, Bangor, and if you're going north in Maine, there's Bangor, Orno, Old Town. And if you get off the Old Town exit, it's right just in downtown Old Town. You'll find the reservation, the bridge to the reservation.
0: Well, the stories that you have, have written in this collection depict Uh, the life of a character that as I was reading it I took as a kind of proxy for you. David is the protagonist of this collection and sort of the through line, his experiences and his lens, his family life, which is riddled with addiction and trauma and poverty, like a lot of difficult stuff. And just wondering, you know, what, what it was like to... Uh, build a universe, like a, a fictional universe that I'm assuming was close to home, or maybe it's not. Maybe this is a complete invention, but it sure seemed to be a collection born of a lot of tough experience.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the stories that were told from David's point of view are, are, um, you know, D- David as a character is sort of like, he, he is like, when I first started writing, I first started writing a lot of nonfiction and memoir type, like slice of life stuff. And I found myself being like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened or if this had happened? And I moved to fiction. And so I started to take, you know, those things that, you know, things that had happened in my life and shaped them into a work of either auto fiction or or pure fiction, depending how far I departed from the original incident incidents. But, you know, the David stories, I think, are pretty close to um, not autobiography, autobiographical by any means but have the most i think like real life type situations that i that i drew from and put into the into the stories and the d and the fellas ones are there's no real moments in there that are really autobiographical but are things that i've i had heard or i had experienced thematically i think like with drug addiction and, and that sort of thing and some substance abuse and family estrangement you know things that i i had familiar, familiarity with but not you know specific moments that i wrote about but you i used fiction as a means to make it feel as if like you said like it was a, like an actual lived experience
0: it sure felt that way and i feel like too you know just from my own experience as a writer that so much of the impulse to write fiction is born from a poor memory <laughs> i don't i don't remember everything well enough to feel like i've got it nailed down uh, as nonfiction. it's just i don't know i don't know how to do it you know i'm trying right now but uh, i'm working from a diary which helps but it's hard i feel like to to render something as a memoir with my brain
1: I agree yeah I'm working on an essay collection right now like a memoir not memoir but like family type stories and it's like I I keep finding myself being like I don't know what like the story can only be a paragraph long because that's all I remember about it you know and it's like trying to figure out when to embellish when to you know take those artistic liberties to you know recreate something that you're not quite sure if you know it was accurate you know and the ethics behind it all it's tough it's really really tough.
0: So what about getting into writing? When did you know that you wanted to do this? I was
1: probably about 18, I think, when I, when I decided I, I wanted to write, you know. I guess I was always a storyteller. Like, I always enjoyed telling stories. I wasn't the biggest reader, I wasn't the biggest writer growing up. You know, a lot of, in high school, you know, a lot of things at home impeded, I think, my attention to education. But when I went to college, I, when I went to Eastern Maine Community College, I was like, I I fell in love with literature, I, I, I found that, you know, my passion for storytelling, you know, and just, I don't know, a way to tell the stories I've been telling all my life to people and friends and stuff, I could do in a written way. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to do that. And I just pursued it, I just kept pursuing it and pursuing it until... I got too deep into it that I couldn't turn around and was like, well, I'm stuck being a writer. I'm not going to, I can't become a mechanical engineer. I can't be a doctor now. Like I got to, I got to do this thing. So I, yeah, that, that, that's really, you know, how, how it happened. I just, I've always, like I said, just been a storyteller and I just, I guess lucked out in you know, discovering literature and realizing, you know, I could use it to continue what, continue to do what I had, you know, loved to do.
0: There's a strong oral storytelling tradition in Penobscot uh, Nation and culture. Correct? There is. Yeah. Yep. Because I, I won't, was wasn't it like it's not a written language? It's a spoken. Am I remembering this right?
1: Yeah, it was never a written. It uh, we have like an alphabet and like a it, it's written now, um, but I mean it's only been that since. I mean, really, since the '90s with like a, the actual alphabet system, but no, it was always just an oral language. Um, it was, it was never written at all.
0: Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Is there a storytelling tradition in your family or a tendency towards the arts? Um...
1: Not really, no, no. There's other families that have much more of an artful background especially when it comes to like cultural stuff like basket making or even storytelling or carving, you know, those things.
0: But no, no, not, not really. <laughs> so well, I'm just curious, like I'm, I'm always curious like the, how writers form. Were there, was there, were there teachers who turned you on? Were there particular books that you read that blew your mind and set you on this, on this course?
1: Like I said, I just always felt, you know, growing up, like I always felt like I was a storyteller. And then, you know, when I was like, oh, I guess I can write, you know, I remember reading Kerouac. And, you know, in the summers, my my mom would send me to go visit with my dad in Connecticut. And so I would always take the Greyhound bus. And I remember when I read Kerouac when I was like 18, it was like, you know, 10 years worth of, Greyhound trips, you know, there's something about that story that resonated with me and, you know, about being on the road. What what
0: on the on the road?
1: Yeah, on the road by Kerouac, yeah. And, you know, I fell in love with with his work. You know, I read everything. I fell in love with like all the beat writers. You know, I read all of that that I could get my hands on and it just didn't stop. And then I had a teacher at the community college who was like my well, two of them who were like my my first mentors ever and one of them taught the uh, uh, creative nonfiction there and he was just a genius he was a a literal genius and he was just so good at, at teaching writing and he was a good he was a great writer as well and he he was the one who was like oh you're really good you know he's like I remember I did a reading I wasn't in his class it was for introduction to creative writing and at the end of the semester all of us in the class had to read a piece we wrote and I remember he was there in the audience and it was just a tiny audience and I remember I read and uh at the end I sat down and he uh he tapped me on the shoulder. He was like, Can I see that? And I had I had a paper version of it and I was like, Yeah, sure and he took it and he disappeared. I never saw him again after that. I don't know what he did with the with the piece, but he just you know, I I took his classes and he would just always champion my work. He was he was so good at, you know, being like, nah, this isn't working, and here's why. You know, he's like, this is working, this is why. You know, he he, he really helped me develop, I think, a, a solid foundation that I grew from. And I, I return time and time again to the things he's he's taught me.
0: What were some of the things he taught you? Can you remember? I mean, are there specific lessons? I think the
1: big one, you know, was like, you, you know, sometimes you'll write something, and it's just like, it's, yeah, you know, it's okay, right? But then sometimes you'll, you'll write something, and you'll strike gold or diamond or whatever. And... He was like, you know, he knew... He helped me figure out how to see that, you know, I think, which is an important thing. He's like, notice how, like, this one, you know, this piece is, you know, that much more emotionally potent than, you know, this last piece you wrote. Notice how this one is so much more specific than that last one you wrote. He also really taught me a lot about editing, too, about, like, the power of cutting words. He was a fantastic editor, you know, he would... You know, I would write something and he would be like, I didn't, he's like, I did not change a single thing in your in your piece for you. He's like, but look at what I cut. He's like, think about what I cut. And I would, and, and I'd be like, this, like, this guy's brilliant. You know, and I've worked with editors, you know, since then, you know, from all sorts of places, from, you know, Tin House to Granta Magazine to, you know, the Georgia Review. And it's like the way, you know, to have somebody at that age when I was 18, have that level of genius about writing was just like, just instrumental. Like, I, I, don't, know where, I don't know where I would be with, without, without his teachings.
0: Well, and this was at East, you said East Main Community College?
1: Eastern Main Community College, yeah. Who is
0: this guy? He sounds, he sounds like a magician.
1: <laughs> he is a magician. He's uh, I, I would say his name, but he's pretty, he, I think he likes his privacy. He he's actually retired now. He retired um some years back.
0: I was going to say if he wants to strike up a side hustle as a freelance editor, we could probably get him some customers.
1: Probably could. He probably could. Yeah. He uh, yeah, he no, he's retired. He uh, I think he has horses, but I know he he spends time traveling and him with him and his, him and his wife and his and his grand visiting his grandkids and stuff. So um, yeah, he he was just brilliant, brilliant guy.
0: Lucky you. And and so where did you go from there?
1: Uh, so, yeah, I was at Eastern Maine Community College for three years, and then I transferred to Dartmouth College, where I got my bachelor's in Native American Studies and probably could have also gotten an English degree, but I didn't really pay very close attention to degree requirements. But I took a lot of workshops there, Intro to Creative Writing and the workshop classes and stuff. And yeah, I Ultimately graduated from there, and then I went to the Stone Coast MFA, and that's where I really wrote Night of the Living Res, well, most of it. The, the title story, Night of the Living Res, I actually wrote while I was at Dartmouth. I wrote that in 2015 for a workshop class. But it was at Stonecoast that, it was at Stonecoast and after Stonecoast that I finished the book that we see
0: today. Was there, were there stories that were cut that didn't make the collection that you had written in full?
1: Oh, yeah, tons of them. So many of them. It It's funny, the Idaho Review recently, I think the recent issue, has a story of with, uh, that focuses on David and Tyson that was in the collection, but ultimately,
0: ultimately didn't make the final cut. So what were the determining factors? I'm curious, because like I said, this book reads, it, it, you know, to me it almost read like a novel just because you're dealing with the same characters and the same f- central family throughout the the entire collection but w- were there you know were there things that you ended up zeroing in on that helped to unify it and that helped you make the determinations as to what stayed in and what was cut yeah
1: that, yeah so the one of the things the very first things was being mindful of how many stories were in the collection you know i was told over and over again that most story collections tend to have like on average 10 stories in them and so when i had a bunch of d and fella stories you know i don't know say 10 of them and then i had you know david stories you know say 10 of them i chose 5 of the best of the bunch and so i i did it that way and i then you know was like well okay how do i order this you know is it going to be like all david stories and then d stories but when i looked at it that way i was kind of like well now it feels like i have to turn it into a novel cuz there's this like missing gap in, in time in a sense. And so I was like, well, what if I conceal it by doing like a back and forth structure? I'm like, we have a D story, a David story, a D story, a David story. And the moment I did that, the moment I was like, oh, I think I found something here. And so I started to just nurture that. I had these, you know, five stories from David, five stories from D. And I made it, I, I really worked to, like, I saw that there was an essential question throughout the whole book which was you know what happened like why how did we get from David to D but it wasn't a question that was problematic and needed answering for each of the stories so I focused on the stories as being like individual short stories but at the same time was very subtly and like carefully linking them in ways that I think helped answer that question ultimately by the end and, and helped sort of help sort of make the stories feel um, like they relied on each other even though they didn't need to rely on each other. I mean, for, for example, you know, there's Safe Harbor where...
0: Oh, and let me, let me just quickly interrupt you. When you said that the central question was how you got from David to Dee, yeah. uh, what do you mean by that?
1: You know, how did David turn into D? You know, like what, like, how did we get this good-natured boy? Um, because, you know, in the process of writing this book, I, you know, didn't, I I only discovered D after I had written a failed version of this book that had, like, ten stories all told from David's point of view, and I encountered D when I was like, I'm going to go write a different book, I'm going to go write a different story, you know, this book failed, I'm going to go do something else, and I wrote Burn, and in Burn, I was like, no, this can't be David, you know, I'm writing something different, I'm writing an entirely different character, but the more I resisted it, the more. I realized that wasn't working, and I was like, wait, is this, does this guy go by the name of D? Because I put the letter D in as a placeholder for his name in that story because I was so used to writing from David's point of view that I wanted to call him David, but I was convinced it wasn't him. And finally, I just put two E's after it, and I was like, wait a minute, this is David all grown up. And that revitalized the whole book that I had thought failed. And so... I Started writing these D and Fella stories, you know, just ex- again, just sticking to the short story structure, not some novel structure. And I saw when I looked at the David stories, and then I had the, all these D stories, I was like, well, now there's this question here of like, what happened? Like, how did we, how did David turn into D, you know, and how does D get out of this situation, if at all? And so that's what I meant by that, by that central question, you know, how did, how did this character, you know, turn into such a wreck
0: (laughs) in a way. So I I wanna talk a little bit more about David's evolution or de evolution into D and the ways in which a character who is trapped in cycles of addiction and trapped in cycles of poverty, he obviously comes from a, a broken family where his parents are split up and his father is a remote presence in his life in large part. And it's a tough set of circumstances. And you do wonder how anybody, uh, like as a reader, I found myself wondering, like, how does anybody make it out of this? You know, How does somebody transcend that set of circumstances and get into a different narrative, so to speak? I mean, I, my question I suppose is, did you come to any conclusions about how, how this happens and how a person might find their way out
1: you know, I don't, it's a, it's a good question. I, I wish I had an answer. Um, you know, I think it, I, I really, I think it has to do a lot with being, a f- being sort of like mindful of, you know, what's going on around you, which can be hard, especially for a child, because that's like an unnecessary thing that you have to, deal with, you know, you never want a child to have to, like, be observant about the terrible stuff that's going on around them. But I don't, I don't know, like, it's like a combination of that and then like a combination of, you know, knowing that you don't want to make the same mistakes that maybe your parents did or your family did and, you know, trying to, you know, get out of it, right? I think the first thing is recognizing that you're in it and then, you know, trying to find a way out but still also importantly enough like not abandoning you know that that family like that's like the important thing and like that's what i you know was so dedicated to in this book was like even though like people get in these terrible situations they still are nonetheless like together at the end of the day
0: yeah you know it's interesting that's it's interesting that you say that because for all of the dysfunction and all of the trauma that this family faces and that david faces there's a lot of love <laughs> and there's a lot of um, cohesion in that sense. You know, There's a lot holding it together, too. And it is uh, striking to me the ways in which the two can go together. You know, like it's never as simple as just like everything's all fucked up or everything's all yeah. good. It's always some combination. And, you know, I really felt for David's mother you know, the, the burden that she was carrying trying to raise him and raise his sister and make ends meet and deal with um, her. Uh, I mean, Frick felt to me like an alcoholic partner, right? I mean, is that a fair assessment of Frick? This is uh, David's oh, yeah, uh, de facto yeah. stepfather who lives with him. Yeah. So I don't know. Just I just felt like I could feel the weight that she was carrying. And you do a great job of humanizing everybody despite whatever challenges they might be facing or flaws that they might have.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's always like what I want to do is I want to give every character, you know, that sense of like, I never want them to lean one way or the other. I always want them to be, you know, leaning, you know, in the midst of a dichotomy of good and bad of, you know, loving and, you know, or full of hatred, you know, like I think, you know, that's like really what it is like to, to be human you know these the way we the way we move so quickly you know between emotions and feelings and so I never try to slight my characters in that way because if to do that is to make them feel not real at all.
0: What has been I'm curious to know what the response has been from readers in Penobscot Nation like if you people you grew up with like you know have have they read it and have they given you feedback?
1: Everyone I've talked to really Really likes it. Those who don't like it haven't said, haven't said said any, said a word to me about it. You know, I haven't received any bad, any <laughs> uh, any death threats or anything from anybody. But no, the community has been really really supportive. You know, when the book first came out, my aunt's the tribal clerk, and everybody was going up to her and asking her. She's like asking her. They're like, so who's who in this book? You know, they wanted to know who was like who was who, and so they were all you know interested and you know like really really supportive and you know on social media whenever I would talk about the book everybody was just very excited and I go there and often and you know I'll see people and you know they're like you know hey you know great book you know and all, and just very nice stuff so it, it, it's been nothing
0: but good. So what was your like writing routine to get all this done? I mean you were at Stone Coast and like you said you were writing uh you know in a variety of places kitchen tables outside like wherever you could find the space and the time but i'm wondering about ritual like do you have a set time of day that you work did you hold yourself to a particular schedule
1: so i didn't hold myself to a particular schedule i think what happened was you know i and i ended up writing most of the stories in the morning you know around 8 or 9 you know i'd i'd start to i'd start to work you know, until about lunchtime, and for me, like, when it comes to writing it this is just generally the case for the book, but, like, each of the stories in this book, you know, would take, for, to get a draft out, would take me anywhere from five to seven days, and so i chip away at it, you know, and that became my process, and, you know, just doing that, like, sitting down, doing the work every day, you know, getting out 500 to, you know, 1,500 words, you know, which could take an hour or it could take four hours, uh, you know, five. It, it always just depended how, how fussy uh, the story was being.
0: How long? So five to seven days to get a draft out. Are you working from an outline? Or are you just feeling your way through? Like when you sit down to write uh, a story, like how much of a clear idea do you have of what it is and where it's going versus, you know, maybe having an image or an, a character or a situation and then... It, you know, expanding from there.
1: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't outline at all. Sometimes I'll have an idea or an image. You know, the story "Earth Speak" for example, in *Night of the Living Res*. I had the. It opens with that image of like, um, Dee and Fellus up at the top of that hill, and they can see the pine trees, and there's the fog that sort of like. Nestles above the pine trees, like the. Uh, webs of fall webworms and the crooks of brown branches and that was an image I'd seen one day driving home and I wrote it down and I was like oh it'd be cool if uh, I was just sitting there one day one morning thinking I was like oh it'd be funny if I had two guys who like saw an antiques roadshow how much a root club sold for and then they wanted to like rob the tribal museum and I was like I gotta write that story and you know I I, I used that image I'd seen as a way to get into the story and then I just kept pushing forward. Like I knew what they were gonna do, but I didn't know how it was gonna play out. So I had to like, you know, over those five and seven days of the drafting process, and even after that, when I go back to revise even more, it's like, okay, am I am, am I getting this right, you know? And and sometimes, you know, I'll write a, you know, like that'll be one way I'll I'll approach a story or another is I'll just like, I'll just start with just some simple idea and I can write, you know, 10, 20 pages And it's all garbage but nonetheless it'll bring me to some scene or some idea that I wouldn't have otherwise thought of if I hadn't written those you know 10 or 20 pages and then that becomes the story I work on for the next week or month or even year you know so it's all very weird I I don't plot I like to just be surprised and yeah just sort of not know what's going to come my way.
0: And what about failure uh, which most writers have to grapple with especially early on but uh, you know there's really no end to it. Uh, I'm wondering about your apprentice years and about stories that you've written that didn't work or attempts at this book that didn't pan out. Like how long did it take you to get to where you could write this book? Um,
1: Jeez. Um, it probably took me about five years of, of just writing bad stuff until I got to writing, you know, Night of the Living Res, the title story, which in and of itself was, was not a great story. Um, The one that's in the book is like a a substantially revised version of what I had written for the workshop um, that I submitted in 2015. But yeah, I mean like five or six years of like dedicatedly writing bad material. And, you know, this is the thing I'll say about failure is like, there's, there's two sort of like spheres of failure. And one of them really doesn't exist. So like we think that there's failure, like we write something and the piece fails and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. It gets tucked in a folder. We never see it again. Then there's the failure of like trying to publish and you just keep keep getting told no, right? Or you publish a book and it doesn't sell well, right? You know, like there's that failure. The failure of writing work and it not turning out into anything is an illusion. Like I don't, I don't believe that, anything we write is actually a failure it's always for me and, and i didn't understand this until you know a couple of years ago but when we write a first when we write a draft that doesn't work it usually is in some way pointing us in the right direction the blessing tobacco for example no uh, food for the common cold i wrote that story only exists because i wrote and kept trying to revise this 30-page story that was completely unrelated to Food for the Common Cold with David and his family and it was through that story that I saw this strange sort of gap about Frick and Mom's relationship and if I hadn't done that I wouldn't have written Food for the Common Cold so like on that side of like the art and the writing and putting in the time like I don't think there's any ever there's no such thing as failure like I think it's just it's just work, it's just writing, you're, you're crawling, you know, until you can get to a place where you start, where you can run, you know, and then you slow down again. But with the business side, you know, of submitting and stuff, you know, that, even that is, you know, it, failure becomes a subjective thing, you know, like what, like, whose standards are you saying, you know, whose standards are being used to dictate if something failed, you know, the market, the fact that you're not, you know, getting pieces submitted or uh, accepted you know it's just a weird a weird place but nonetheless it's one that eats at writers and can get in the way of them writing which is why I always am like we need to if we're going to write we need to stay in that other place where we know that failure is just an illusion until we're ready you know to send stuff out and hopefully somebody likes it, you know what I mean? And there are people out there who will like it. it it's just about persistence and determination and, and not giving up. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think I got a, I didn't get a story accepted. I spent like eight or nine years submitting to magazines before finally a place accepted a story. Really? Eight or nine years? Yep, just submitting and just no's and no's and no, no thank you, no thank you. And I just kept going and going and going. And, and then finally, finally some somebody bit. Who was it? Um, (laughs) So it was actually a small magazine, and they were the ones who published Night of the Living Res, the story, and they're listed in the back of the book, so there's no point in being like, I'm not going to name them. Um, But it was was a magazine called Red Ink, International Journal of Indigenous Literature, Arts, and Humanities, or something like that. And they were a magazine that existed, um, I think, in the 90s, in one of the Dakotas, I can't remember. It was an indigenous magazine, and... It, it published for a long time and then it kind of disappeared, I think because of funding. And then I believe Arizona State University took it over, took it and tried to revitalize it, but I don't think they had like the the staff to do it. Um, and so like I got a story accepted and I remember I remember checking Submittable and seeing the uh, in progress go to uh, uh, that green accepted. And I was all excited, you know, and just, you know, like, oh my God, you know, I fin- it finally happened. And, but ultimately, I never ended up getting an issue of the magazine. So I never saw it in print or, or anything like that. I don't know what happened. <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of glad, though, because that version of Night of the Living Reds is a very, very premature version of the one that's in the book. But then the next story I got accepted was Burn, which Narrative Magazine published. And that was like the first story ever got, you know, paid for, you know, the first story that was ever really like put in front of people's faces. And that came, you know, after like nine years.
0: So, but how long was that? How long was Burn published after that early version of Night of the Living Res? You know, what was the span of time between the two? Probably like,
1: not even a year, you know, about, you know, so it took me eight years to get a story published that was Night of the Living Res, and then about a year later, or maybe a little under, uh, Burn was published.
0: And so what do you think, if like you go through eight years of apprenticeship and failure where you're submitting and you're getting no's repeatedly, Do you have a sense of what changed? I I feel like so much of this stuff as writers, we, we get to kind of intuitively, like the things that we learn and the ways that we improve are hard to like nail down or define in a simple way. But I'm just wondering if you can look at your work and evaluate it and if you have anything to say about what you feel changed between the stuff that wasn't working and the stuff that ultimately was.
1: Yeah, I think I just, I mean, one, I got better at, I just got better at writing, you know. In the same way, you you practice anything, you'll you'll improve. But I also, you know, somebody told me when I was at Stone Coast, like, they were like. It, it was a, it was a mentor I had, uh, Kara Hoffman, uh, who's the author of so much pretty and running, and just just great work. But she was like you know, I'd sent her Earth speak and she was basically like, I don't know what to tell you about this story. Like it's great. <laughs> you, you know, she was like and, and you know, we'd have conversations and she was event and event and one time she said, she goes, She's like, you need she was like she's like, I can you know she's like, I don't know what I can teach you. And and this isn't, you know, a limitation on her abilities, but she was being sincere. You know, a writer gets to a point, and this is what she said, where they have to become their own best teacher. Where they have to, you know and this is not to say you disregard, you know, feedback from editors and stuff like that, but eventually you will get to a point where you have to start teaching yourself how to get better, how to make your stories go from good to great and great to exceptional. And so I think that was like the biggest thing, you know, that that I sort of recognized in my transition, I think, in, in eventually becoming, you know, mo- you know, after those eight years, I was like, oh, okay, so I don't need this validation from, you know, instructors. I don't need, um, you know, this, it was up to me. It was like, I had to do it. Like, I needed to take control. And I just did. And, and I, had, I had had years of practice. And I was like, I guess it's, I guess I'm ready to check in, I suppose, <laughs> if that's the right metaphor we can get, if we're switching to a sports now. You know, it's like my time to play, I guess.
0: Now that makes sense, and I feel like as I was listening to you talk about Kara telling you that she didn't know what to tell you, I after finishing the last story in this collection, which I feel like the last story, and I won't spoil it for readers, is the most powerful. That one really hit me hard, but these stories feel so lived in, and the universe that you've created feels like just felt like really palpably real to me. I just feel like I just had such intimacy with the world and with the family that you were um telling stories about that it left me speechless. <laughs> I, I was just like, oh, like I almost don't know what to say. And I mean that as a compliment.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, you, you ended up breathless and with bronchitis.
0: Yeah, that's right. I couldn't breathe was essentially the, the yeah. effect that your work had on me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you.
0: Well, I think what it is, maybe what I'm trying to say is that it's so fully realized and also it's really tough stuff. You know, the the stories that you're telling are often not happy stories to to understate it. You know, there's really difficult, painful stories that you're telling and hard lives. And so did you ever struggle with that? Like, did you ever find yourself fighting the impulse to want to fix things or tie things up? Or was it the opposite? Were you... Were you dialing back the darkness because you got too grim?
1: Yeah, I think I was, yeah, definitely. I don't know if I dialed back. I think I I, I was very conscious, though, of, like, neatly wrapping things up. I just, like, like, that's just, like, not life. You know what I mean? Like, life isn't this neat thing. Like, it can be. Like, people can be very fortunate to have, you know, live a life where, things work out and things you know end well even after tragedy and stuff but for the majority of people it's just like that's not the reality which is why I love short stories is because short stories you, you know you know tend to be like they're not novel you know like novels have like the beginning the middle and end and like every novel has some type of like epilogue in a way you know what I mean where like you're never just like a story will just end you know and you're like well holy shit but a novel will get to a point where you're like holy shit but then it'll keep going for 10 15 20 30 pages of just like slowing down you know what I mean and I just wasn't interested in that I was interested in you know highlighting all of this stuff and letting it letting it be as it is you know and and not trying to you know if all of this darkness was on a train, you know, not letting it slow down, but letting it just hit the wall, you know, and let that be its, you know, its stop in a way.
0: And I want to know too, before I forget, I want to know more about your ability to persist in the face of failure, because eight years is a long time. That's a lot of no's. And I think there might be listeners out there who are in that mode or in that phase of creative experience where there aren't a lot of yeses happening, what was it that kept you going?
1: Uh, A couple things. One, I think was my stubbornness, just being like, I'm going to just keep doing this. Like, I'm just going to keep doing it. The other was just having really good support. You know, people being like, basically, you know, somebody, you know, I would write a terrible story you know, for example, and I would send it to, like, the New Yorker, right, and then they would be, like, no, and then, you know, having somebody be, like, well, fuck them, you know, they they missed out, you know what I mean, like, having people, not not lie to you or anything, but, like, having people, like, be there to be, like, on your side the whole step of the way, and being, like, you know, asking about, you know, oh, you know, what whatever happened to that story you wrote, did you send it to places, you know, you know and and having that community i think i think it was my stubbornness and then having people who cared deeply about you know my whole progress as a writer was what i think helped me stay with it
0: did you work do you work in like writers groups or or anything like that i mean outside i'm talking about outside of the context of a university
1: no i don't i i've i've always been very i don't know reclusive with with my writing like i have a few people who will read my things but I never did writers, I never did writers groups, but I do mentor a lot of writers, so I do, not that they read my work, but I read, I read a lot of work by writers that are developing writers and writers who are producing outstanding pieces of fiction. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty secretive and possessive of my work.
0: Yeah, I don't like to show my work to too many people when it's in progress either. I like to, you know, maybe a couple, but I like to keep it as long as I can until I get it as right as I can get it before I share it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because then somebody, it, it, cause you never know what somebody's going to say to it and how that's going to affect how you, you know, I'm, it's just like, you know, I, I sit in a workshop and, you know, I get all this feedback and I only ever maybe incorporate, you know, like 2% <laughs> into it. And I don't know if that's like a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just like how I work.
0: Yeah, I always felt like in workshops the problem was that I didn't, trust the amount of energy and attention that people were giving to the work whether it was mine or uh, or the work of others you know and I say that about myself too there's only so much that you can give to a critique uh, usually because you've got so much going on and then meanwhile the writer has spent years <laughs> living inside this work and, and this world and toiling at it and you know you've spent 25 minutes with it and suddenly you're tearing it apart it just seems like a little bit ridiculous to me and potentially yeah. dangerous yeah
1: especially when you have people who like just like don't know how to talk about feedback you know what I mean like like god oh, you know you know going like purely off subjective stuff like having people who are not well read you know reading your work or having somebody who's like really good at you know sci-fi and is like so like really into like that type of literature read you know like a Raymond Carver-esque story you know what I mean like the way that they uh, there's just all these disconnections that occur in a workshop environment that don't make it the best you know for some people and for the majority of people I remember (laughs) there's this uh I was in workshop with Rick Bass who was leading it and uh I have this this story it's in it's in it's in uh the book I think it's uh Get me some medicine. It's when it's in the opening that there's an opening image of a leaf that's like pressed to a tree, uh, pressed to the window, um, kind of like looking in at Dean and Phyllis, and like that's how we move into the scene. And somebody said uh, later on in the workshop about the story, they're like, they're like, I'd love, you know, when he's, they're like, I'd love if, you know, when we went home, you know, if we got to see that leaf again. And I, you know, I'm always taking notes. I write down any everything everybody says and I, and I see in my peripheral Rick Bass writing something, and I'm like, why is he writing something? And I look over at his piece of paper, and and all it says is, please don't. (laughs) And so, like, just, like, just hearing, you know, strange, not strange feedback, but, like, inconsequential things, and, like, hopes and wishes that people have that a manuscript will do based off of what they like is, you know, can be really, really, can be a huge detriment to, to the piece that that they're reading and that you're trying to, you know, turn into something good.
0: Yeah. Well, and also sometimes people in those workshop environments feel that they have an obligation to give feedback. Like you're going around the circle and everybody's got to say their piece. And so people will will superficially say something just because they feel like they have to. And it doesn't really come with any real uh, forethought or even sincerity. It's just to fill the space.
1: yeah yeah that's true and you know I feel like it's it's been getting a little bit better I mean like because I I teach workshops and I always love when I when we do that thing we'll go around and we'll talk about the piece and or we'll go out of order or whatever and you know sometimes somebody will just be quiet the whole time because they don't you know what they what they have to say is not part of the conversation we're having and it's written out you know in a letter that they're going to give to their peer or you know you get to somebody and like well what do you think and they're like you guys have already said it. You know, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to repeat it. Um, and then you know, and then we move on. You know,
0: I'm wondering if there are uh, other. You know, you mentioned Kerouac earlier, but I'm wondering if there are other authors that you latched onto as you moved through your apprentice years and as you as you worked through this collection. Were there short story writers, for example, that were instructive for you and that helped you figure out how to do it?
1: Oh yeah, Alice Munro. Raymond Carver, uh, Dennis Johnson, Anton Chekhov, jeez, so many, I mean, you know, I'd even pick up, you know, best American short stories and, you know, read, read those, um, who, uh, George Saunders, too, um, whose fiction was so weird, Jamel Brinkley, I remember reading his, his debut collection when I was writing some of the stories in this book, but yeah, I think, uh, there, there's there are so many story writers, but yeah, Alice Munro, Raymond Carver, some of Flannery O'Connor's work as well, I think too. Anton Chekhov, you know, th- those are my those are the people that I I learned a great deal from.
0: So, I'm wondering. I feel like sometimes writers have uh, like a more uh, big picture, thirty thousand foot kind of universal perspective on their work and on their mission creatively. You know, going forward. Uh, Is this the case with you? Like, do you have a sense of the kind of writer that you are and the kind of stories that you are going to tell going forward? Do you have, you know, any kind of clear picture of what you, of the body of work that you hope to create and what it would accomplish? Or is it just like, I wrote this collection, the next book is going to be distinct, it's step by step, and I'm feeling my way through?
1: I think my work's always going to be like deeply rooted in emotion and deeply rooted in feeling and deeply rooted in, you know, what it means to exist and what it means to to feel alive and to be alive. And I think that'll come through various, you know, know, various different ways. I mean, you know, I don't know what I'll write. You know, I have hopes of writing, you know, zombie apocalyptic work, (laughs) you know, you know, um, realistic fiction, you know, everything, and so I... I don't want to write the same type of thing over and over again, like I want to go into unfamiliar territory, and so I, you know, at the end of, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I want to be able to look back and be like, okay, you know, I I, put in, you know, as much as I could with the time given, you know, to create, you know, these stories, these books, you know, I, I just want to keep producing, you know, I told, I have my next novel coming out with Tin House in 2024, and by 2024, I want to have, you know, my next book ready to come out. You know, like I want to keep doing that and just, you know, telling stories because like I, as I said, you know, I feel like that's what I am. I'm just, I'm a storyteller and it's like what I need to do.
0: So what's the novel
1: called? The novel's called Fire Exit. Uh, so there's a comma in between there. Uh, so Fire Exit. And it uh, it really focuses on Blood Quantum, uh, which is a way that tribes use to keep track of um citizen citizenship or membership and which really it's just a colonial tool that's been used as a form of genocide and so the book the book is about that but it's about a man who is non-native and he grew up on the reservation the same the Penobscot nation the same place that the Night of Living Res takes place and um it is he ends up he ends up having a child with a Penobscot woman who only has a quarter blood and having 25% is the cut off anything below you're not considered a citizen of the Penobscot nation or considered Indian by the federal government and since he has no native in him she lies and says that the child is somebody else's and so this book is about this guy pretty much like talking to his daughter and trying to tell her everything that she doesn't know that is actually part of her life, that is part of her being, you know, the family he comes from and all this family history. And it's also about him, uh, sort of like coming back together with his mother who blames him for, uh, his stepfather's death. And so, it's funny i haven't written a synopsis for the book yet so every time i like describe it i'm always like i don't I have no idea if i'm doing it justice at all um but yeah it's no uh, no
0: it's the hard, it's the hardest thing to do it's the hardest thing to do is to try to synopsize one's own novel it's a yeah it's a terrible question to ask somebody what's your book about <laughs> <laughs> but it'll come out in what 2024 you said
1: yeah 2024 we're not sure uh which month but that year
0: all right. Well, we'll look forward to it. And I, I just want to say again how much I enjoyed Night of the Living Res*. I'm glad we got a chance to spotlight it in the uh, book club. And congratulations! This is your debut, right? It is. Yes. Well, it's in a very impressive debut, and I feel like it heralds, uh, you know, a very promising career. So we'll very much look forward to seeing whatever you you come up with next. And. Uh, just wish you well.
1: Thank you for having me, Brad. And thank you for all the kind words. And I'm so glad that you love the book. You know, that makes me so happy.
0: Okay, folks, there we go. That was Morgan Tulte, author of the debut story collection Night of the Living Res*, available now from Tin House. You can find Morgan on the internet at MorganTulti.com. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at morgan__j__tulte. Underscore underscore and you can find them on instagram too one more time the story collection is called night of the living res out there now from tin house the official october pick of the nervous breakdown book club go get your copy right now this is an excellent debut the other people podcast is offered freely you can find it online at otherppl.com. follow the show on twitter at other PPL. Or on Instagram, the handle there is at otherppl.podcast. If you would like to support the program, please do that at patreon.com slash pod. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter at otherppl.com or at bradlisty.com. Either one works. It's the same newsletter in both places. Don't forget as well that this podcast has its own official app. Did you know that? The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's a great way to listen. If you want to get the official app, just go search for it by name, wherever you get your apps, Other PPL with Brad Listy. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. And also, this show has its own YouTube channel. So if you're a YouTube person, please know that the entire archive of this podcast is available on YouTube. You can listen there. Go search for the show by name at YouTube, Other PPL. And when you find the channel, subscribe to the channel. Hit the subscribe button. It's free. All right. So next week on the podcast, my guest is going to be George Saunders. He's got a new story collection out called Liberation Day. This will be George's third time on The Other People Show great to connect with him again and very excited to share that one with you. So stay tuned. The George Saunders episode will drop next Wednesday. Okay. I'll talk to you guys soon.